I'm Curtis, and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. You know, I thought, talking on the first two promises, I thought first, like in a regular meeting, I'd qualify just a little bit and try and talk about how those promises have have woven into my story. You know, I was born in a very religious home, lots of morals, taught lots of willpower. And as we all know, that really didn't make much difference in getting the disease. <clears throat> but, you know, I hear in meetings so often people talking about their first drink and saying that later that's when their emotional development stopped. And I think in my case, you know, the emotional part of my disease started when I was nine years old. I was taken out of school taken to a doctor's office where my dad was in one of the exam rooms and my mother was there, my dad, my brother, and I was told my dad had cancer and was probably going to die. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to let this bother me. This isn't a big deal. You know, that's really when I crossed the line on the emotional side of my disease. I shut off feeling. And it didn't bother me, so I believed. You know, I never once cried. A year later, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. Once again, didn't let it upset me. They each lived eight years, and at their funerals, never cried. You know, I had shut off the world. Well, I was 23 years old before I took my first drink of alcohol. It was the day I got accepted to dental school. I thought, okay, I've finally made it. You know, I can stop being so terrified. And I called up one of my friends said, you know, I finally want to get drunk. And that was not that memorable of an experience for me. You know, that the first drink, that alcohol was not my drug of choice. You know, that crossing the line on the, the chemical side of this disease didn't happen until I was a senior in dental school, at which time I had been in a mountain biking race and crashed and broke my clavicle. And the the ER gal at the medical school there came in and said, well, you're a dental student, you guys party a lot, which actually at that point I had been drinking, you know, alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, but they weren't my drugs of choice yet. So she came in and said, being the partier you guys are, I'll give you some good drugs. And she gave me Percodan. So I went back to my apartment and thought, you know, boy, this really hurts, and I've heard this is a good drug. So I opened the bottle and took nine Percodan. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I felt like I perceived the rest of you looked and felt. You know, This is how I wanted to feel my entire life. This is what I'd been looking for. You know, it, I mean, I don't even have to describe it. It was, everything was perfect and wonderful. 17 hours later, I hadn't peed. And that was miserable. So I went back to the emergency room and was catheterized. Well, my girlfriend then, who was a classmate of mine at dental school, heard about it, came running up there with a couple of my other friends, and they stood outside the curtain and, you know, really had a good time giving me a bad time. You know, it was very humiliating. Very relieving also. So <laughs> went back to my apartment, thought, you know, that was miserable, absolutely miserable. But I liked how I felt. So I opened the bottle and took 12. I was smarter this time. I called one of my classmates who was a nurse before he went to dental school. 
said, you know, you need to go to a home hospital supply place and get a cath kit and bring it over. I'm going to need, need you in about 15 hours. <laughs> so, you know, I figured out how to cope. Well, I didn't have access to drugs at that point. The day I graduated, I did. And within six months of graduating, I was taking, you know, I could get by on 30 Vicodin in a day, but 60 or 70 was better. A lot of insanity started happening. You know, the emotional part of my disease was still, of course, getting worse and worse. But the, the drugs were taking me to lots of insane places. I was signed up for a ski race once and way too impaired, too drunk, too high to ski. So the starter at the gate up at Tahoe looked at me and said, you know, you're too screwed up to ski. You know, you can't race today. And that really pissed me off. So took off my ski boots, put on my tennis shoes. The next guy out of the gate, just before he went out, I went over, jumped on him, put my arms around him, put my feet on the back of his skis, and went down the hill with him. Until, of course, we crashed. You know, I broke my thumb, he broke his ribs, and, you know, the insanity had started. I had a fascination with guns. I remember my wife and I went to San Francisco once. And after she went to sleep, I had perfected this, this art of she complained about me staying up all night, you know, doing coke and meth. Not that I thought she didn't know what I was doing, but anyway. So I'd go to bed and lay there and I'd wait till her breathing was real rhythmic and then I'd do lines off the nightstand. Well, we were in San Francisco in a hotel and I didn't have any drugs and, you know, I needed a fix. So I waited till her breathing was rhythmic and snuck out of the room, went down to my truck, and I always had four or five guns in the truck for who knows what reason. And I put a nine millimeter in the shoulder holster, put a 380 in the back of my pants, and put a, like two guns in my in little ankle holsters. Went walking around the streets of San Francisco at two in the morning. You know, I didn't know what I was looking for, just insanity. Um, had this, all sorts of insane other things happen. Had a fishing boat come off the top of my truck and go through the windshield of an oncoming car. Um, you know, I'd have patients bring their drugs back for me to check. You know, I'd write a little old lady with a perio-involved tooth, 40 Vicodin, for a simple extraction, and tell her that the pharmacists, you know, were just not trained like they used to be, and they needed to bring their medicines in for me to check them. And, of course, they were always wrong. And so I'd have to take them. You know, well, this lady didn't bring her drugs back one day. So I thought, you know, her husband had come in with her and was sitting in the operatory. I thought, you know, they're old. They don't have kids at home. While they're in my operatory, they can't also be in their house. So I told her I needed to, you know, do the post-extraction check. In a few minutes, I had to finish another patient. You know, went and got in my truck, you know, looked in her chart, found her address, drove to their house, found a window open, crawled in, found her Vicodin. You know, I'd become a thief, a burglar. The, the insanity was just beyond my belief. I didn't think it was a big deal, obviously. Well, the point of telling some of these war stories, um, you know, for the drug part, the, the emotional part was just as profound. Um, my wife, we'd had a little girl, and my wife was pregnant, was preeclamptic. She called me in one day to check her blood pressure. She said, I can't see. 
And I took it, and it was 220 over 170. And, you know, I had told you that I had shut down my emotions. Well, they were still there. And the truth was, I was just absolutely terrified, just terrified that something might happen to her. You know, how I responded was went out in the garage, got drunk, passed out on the floor. And, you know, the ambulance came, took her to the hospital for emergency C-section. You know, I was passed out on the floor. Well, eventually, I was intervened on. Of course, it didn't work. I told them where to go and how far up there to put their heads. And they waited a few months and called the board on me. And that got my attention. I went home and told my wife I need to go to that treatment center in Atlanta they were talking about. And she took me to the airport, you know, slowed down enough for me to fall out of the truck. Um, I didn't make it all the way to treatment. I got arrested halfway there at the Denver airport because I was too drunk. But in treatment, I have, you know, there's these moments of clarity. And for me, it was the first time, you know, I was truly amazed. The promises are given right after the ninth step. For me, the promises started happening, you know, the moment I'd begun to surrender. You know, going to treatment was the beginning of a surrender for me. I remember sitting in a meeting. I was there about three weeks. You know, my brain was starting to clear a little bit. And a guy, it was his eighth birthday, and he told his story. And he was just as insane as I. I didn't believe there was anyone out there who was as insane as I. He was just as insane as I was. And he'd been sober eight years. And that absolutely amazed me. And I think that was the first moment I believed there must be a God. It had nothing to do with religion. You know, the religion I'd been raised in, I wasn't able to you know, get a loving, kind God out of it. It was just simple. This guy was as screwed up as I was. He'd been sober eight years. Maybe there was hope for me. It still is a profound moment for me. It also is a reason when I tell my story, I tell the war stories. The drunkologues are very powerful to me because I remember hearing that and having it touch me so profoundly that there was hope. You know, the other times, I obviously, the amazement, it was about a month being in treatment, and I woke up one morning and realized for the first morning, I wasn't obsessed on, you know, how could I get 60, 70 Vicodin or 20, uh, 20 cc's of Demerol or fentanyl or, you know, all those drugs. You know, every morning, the first thing I woke up was, how was I going to get enough today? I remember the day that I woke up at treatment after being there a month, and it was probably 10 in the morning, and I thought, you know, I haven't yet thought about getting drugs. And that was just profoundly moving. It's absolutely moving. Well, I was in treatment five months, and it was exactly what I needed. I came home, and I thought everything was going to be absolutely perfect, absolutely wonderful. And it was incredibly better. You know, I didn't have the compulsion. The compulsion had left. I had a God in my life. It was very simple. The God was just a belief that if I was honest about my feelings, if I talked about my fears, talked about my emotions, I wouldn't have that compulsion that day. But difficulties came up. And 
I got a call one day. The lady at the dental board called me and said, you know, you went to that treatment center back east. We have a guy who I'd like you to talk to. Well, he was in Southern California. I was up, you know, 600 miles north. And I was still pretty toxic at that point looking back. So I got his name, phone number for her from her. She wanted me to call him. You know, I drove down to Reno, 100 miles away, our closest airport, got on a plane, flew down there to talk to him. You know, she later heard that I was going to do that and was terrified, so she sent another guy with me. But in trying to, you know, share with him what had happened to me, you know, the problems, the problems that I thought were going to all go away from being sober that hadn't, those problems seemed less that day. And I got profoundly addicted to trying to help other dentists. You know, it's, it has been a theme of my recovery ever since. Very, very involved with well-being committee. And, and I think that sort of leads into the next promise, at least in my story, which is we'll know a new freedom and a new happiness. The, you know, that new freedom and new happiness for me is not that my problems have gone away or ever will. But sort of the paradigm shift that happened, and it started in me going to talk to that first dentist, and it's part of what Terry was talking about the other day. The first three steps, the compulsion left. Working the rest of it is, you know, the first three steps got me abstinent. Working the rest of the program has been getting me sober and keeping me sober. And that is that, you know, I'll have a day that I'm, you know, just spinning in my head about some problem that's going to affect me, going to affect my wife, or it's affecting me about my wife, or, you know, just the insanity. And I'll get a well-being phone call. You know, the wife of some addicted dentist will just call out of the blue. You know, that's a God thing for me. It's absolutely amazing. Um, I believe the, the first 15 interventions I did went exactly the way I thought they should go. You know, and that was God's sense of humor. I got addicted to it. You know, the next 30 of them didn't go any way that I thought they should go. <laughs> but I was still just like chasing a drug. You know, I know they can go right. But it's working with others that I think I got addicted to. The new freedom and the new happiness that has come out of recovery, for me, is a big part of sort of a paradigm shift. The tools of recovery for the day-to-day -day problems I have are not about helping me solve the problem that's making my head spin. The tools of the program that give me a new freedom and a new happiness are about helping me be okay with what I believe is the primary purpose of sobriety, which is to be of service. Now, the tools help me be okay with realizing that I don't have to solve my problem. I have to make sure that my path of solving that problem doesn't get in the way of me being of service. You know, a real paradigm shift and a real freedom that comes of it. It isn't all about me anymore. The, I believe that the, you know, the, the, the biggest event that has helped me make that shift about being of service has been getting sponsees. You know, I have two sponsors myself. But I have right currently about four people I'm sponsoring. You know, the problems those people bring me are, without exception, 
the problems I'm dealing with in my life at the time. You know, the input, the advice that I hear myself give them is, it's just uncanny. It's exactly the input I need that day for me to help me deal with my problem. And, uh, you know, the tool of being of service, trying to help them, I'm the one that benefits. You know, this new freedom and this new happiness is not about taking my problems away. It's about the, the, the spiritual place I get when I make sure I'm being available to help somebody else. Thank you for letting me share. Good morning. My name is Lynn, and I am an alcoholic. Uh, I'm not going to requalify. I've been coming to this meeting now. Let's see. This is uh, since 1982. I've missed two, and I'm, some several of you know my story. But believe me, I do qualify. Uh, uh, my whole life revolved around acquisition of, ingestion of, and consequences of drinking ethyl alcohol. My favorite drink was the next one, and uh, I just uh, love that stuff because it, it, it empowered me. Uh, I see Leland sitting in the audience this morning, and he always starts his talks with hello family, and, and that's how I view everybody here uh, in IDAA as, uh, you know, my real family. Uh, when Terry called to ask if we'd talk about the promises, uh, he said, I want you to do three and four. And I said, well, Terry, how do you count these? Because uh, he says, we're going to do the 12 promises. And I always thought there was only 11. And uh, he says, no, I'll send you the list. And, and uh, the first one he had was, we will be amazed before we were halfway through. He counted that as the first promise. And um, <clears throat> earlier this week, I was in... Uh, South Padre Island, Texas, and first time I've ever seen this. And all the AMEs I went to, they had, you know, the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and they had the 12 promises. Only they counted them <laughs> differently. Uh, they counted down at the end uh, uh, that they will always materialize as number 12. So, anyway, I don't know how they count them, but anyway, we uh, we uh, uh, are going to do them the way they uh, they want them done. It's um, it's, and then yesterday, uh, my wife and I took uh, a college classmate of hers and her uh, husband to their first Al-Anon meeting because one of their kids has a problem. And at this Al-Anon meeting, they read the twelve promises of a, or the eleven promises of AA. So we were back to eleven. But I always wondered what uh, what it was about this. Uh, uh, it says uh, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, and I never quite understood that. And at the Allen, I mean, yesterday they had after the word phase in parentheses step nine, and then I understood what the painstaking was about. You know, if we are painstaking, it doesn't say these things are going to come easily. It says if we are painstaking about this phase, in other words, we get through nine, uh, then this stuff will start to happen. And then the other, for, for some of you who are new here in the book, even the new edition, these promises are all on pages 83 and 84. And, and the most important part of all of them at the end is when they say, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And this is the fascinating part for me. They will always materialize. Now, it's, in this book, they don't usually use such an inclusive uh, all capturing term as always, uh, too, too many times, but they said they will always materialize. 
uh, if we work for them. That's a big if. So the working part, again, is back to the, to the painstaking thing. So uh, when I talk about something, I usually go to the dictionary so I know what I'm talking about. And uh, I looked up the word promise. And there were several definitions. And one was a declaration that something will or will not be done. Uh, an indication of future excellence or achievement. Uh, to assure, to afford ground for uh, expecting, to give cause for expect, uh, expectation, to cause or have grounds for hope. That's what I like. Uh, and that's what the promises uh, mean to me. Uh, I had the pleasure, not once, not twice, but three times, of uh, uh, actually hearing uh, Joe and Charlie in person do their big book uh, study. And they got an, an interesting twist on, on the promises. And uh, I forget whether it was Joe or Charlie, uh, but they said, you know, if you look at the promises from this perspective, if you just insert the phrase, every time I took a drink before some of the promises, you kind of get a new perspective on it. For example, every time I took a drink, <clears throat> I knew a new freedom and a new happiness. Every time I took a drink, I didn't re <clears throat> I regret the past and wished to shut the door on it. Every time I took a drink, I comprehend the word serenity, and I would know peace. Every time I took a drink, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity disappeared. Every time I took a drink, my whole attitude and outlook on life changed. Every time I took a drink, fear of people and of economic insecurity left me. Every time I took a drink, I intuitively knew how to handle situations which used to baffle me. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting uh, perspective. Uh, the ones I want to talk about this morning are uh, three and four, the way Terry counts them, and that's we will not regret the past and wish to shut the door. And it was the first, it was number three. And uh, at yesterday's uh, early bird meeting, uh, Doug led a session on that, and there was basically the bottom line was uh, you can't ignore the past, and I can't ignore my past because that's what got me here, and that's why I am so grateful. Uh, for my past. For a long time, I focused on that. Uh, everything that I did, I shouldn't have done, and all of the things that my drinking prohibited me from doing. Uh, how I shortchanged my patients, how I shortchanged my, my spouse, my kids, uh, and I was just not available because I was totally uh, preoccupied with uh, alcohol. And I would, I would constantly, my middle name is guilt, you know, I just uh, was so guilty and so shameful for all of those things. Uh, especially the value system uh, violations, that spiritual deterioration that occurs with this illness just drive me up a tree. And every so often I would go back to my hometown um, and, and, and I would drive around and see the, the home I grew up in, the house I grew up in, and, and all the chaos that was there and, and uh, that horrendous dysfunctional family. Uh, Speaking of dysfunctional families, guy, guy said to me the other day, uh, when we were down in Texas, he said, I was, uh, I w he was a visitor also, and he said, uh, I went to an FFA meeting the other night. Y'all got FFA down here in, in South Texas? And everybody said, what the hell's FFA? He said, it's Functional Families Anonymous. I, I, went, and, I went and I was the only one who showed up. Uh, <laughs> 
But I'd see this dysfunctional family, and then I'd drive around the old neighborhood and the, all, all, where all the aunts and uncles were and all the booze. And, and before you know it, I was back in that incomprehensible uh, and pitiful demoralization. I would, I would just soak in the past and, and, and relive that crap and think, oh, God, this is terrible. Why did, how did I ever get myself into this mess? And then, you know, uh, then I would start this great fear projection about uh, how things could have been so much better if I hadn't got caught up in the grips of alcoholism. And I should have known better. After all, I'm a doctor, and uh, this, this just is unacceptable. And I used to just dwell about the pain and misery of the past, and it was terrible. Uh, about four months ago, I went home to uh, be with my uh, dear first cousin, whom I loved and who was dying, of cancer, and uh, she actually waited till I got there, which I think people do, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times uh, before she died. And it was a real honor to be with her as she made her transition. And this time I drove around the old neighborhood and saw a lot of the old friends, and uh, I wasn't there in that pain and misery of the past anymore. I, I, I did not wish to shut the door on it. Uh, I, I was not regretting it. I saw it for what it really is that it was so eloquently put yesterday uh, in the early bird meeting that. Had it not been for the past, you know, uh, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't have this family. Uh, and, you know, I've heard also that uh, I'm so-and-so and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. I thought the first time I heard that's the most idiotic statement I ever heard. Uh, how can anybody be grateful? But it's true for me. Um, I used to say, well, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm uh, I'm grateful that I know I'm an alcoholic or that I've come to grips with my alcoholism or that I got in recovery. No, I'm grateful that I'm an alcoholic. Uh, very high dues to pay to get in this club. I would not want to go and do it again. The initiation fee is too great. But if I weren't an alcoholic, I would not have ever been exposed to the fellowship and the program, the 12 steps. I, I don't think I'd have found it. I and 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 the, uh, this family and those twelve steps have changed my life, um, and they have given me too a new freedom and a new happiness and and all the other things that this pro these promises say. Um, the fourth one is we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Uh, do I have serenity all the time? No. Uh, am, am am I a total peace uh, all the time? No. Uh, uh, life continues to be a struggle, but I have glimpses of it now, uh, and that's what's neat. I, I, I lived in total fear before, uh, like it was discussed at this morning's early bird meeting. Total fear, and all the uncertainty, and that empty feeling in my stomach, and oh darn, the phone's ringing again, and and uh, who's going to want me to do what that I know really down deep in my heart I can't do because. I'm no good, and I'm no damn good. You know, all that guilt and shame that went with, with this illness for me. And I don't have, again, as, as, as much of that as I used to. There are periods of time, uh, in time, that, you know, occasionally will pop up. But uh, I got a way to deal with that now, lots of ways, lots of tools in the bag that I never had before. But just again to give you a couple current examples on on this trip here, uh, 
I'm working on a very important project uh, in my uh, in my pro my physician program back home in Washington, and I brought the file to work with it on the plane, and I got a different uh, case for my computer, so I, that had to be checked on the outside baggage when the smaller jets as we were flying around Texas, and uh, so I took the file out and. They put the computer case on the little cart outside the plane. They give it back to you when you land. And so I was working on the way down, and coming back from South Texas up to here, I went into the computer case again. It was gone, and I thought I had lost it. This file, this thick, with just about the end of this project that I'm doing, which would have meant horrendous number of hours and phone calls to reconstruct the whole project. And I didn't lose my cool about it. Uh, not too long ago, I would have gone ballistic about that, would have really just gone ballistic. And as it turned out, um, it was in my wife's bag. Uh, and uh, everything was fine. And then when I get here, okay, I go to take my uh, prescriptions, and wouldn't you know, I left them in, in South Texas in, uh, at my son's home, you know. That's why they keep telling me, you keep coming back, you know, it'll get better. Uh, I'm not fixed yet. Now, not too long ago, I would have gone ballistic about that. But uh, uh, I do get these uh, serene moments and, and these peaceful moments. And, you know, it was very simple to come down here and ask Jim Alford, please write me a prescription and go down to the drugstore and get it. And that's what I did. But a few years ago, that would have been a major, major production. Uh, Curtis and I uh, would like you folks to uh, to share with us this morning uh, your thoughts and how these promises uh, have come true in your life as a result of your recovery. But I, I brought along with me a... Uh, uh, a kind of a summation of how they have come through in, in my life, all of the promises, not just the two that we're supposed to talk about this morning. Uh, I have a, a daughter um, who is my counterpart one generation later. She's the hero in our family, the uh, super cum laude uh, uh, academic overachiever, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And she's very much of a feminist, by the way. Uh, she... <laughs> Uh, I'm looking out here and I see uh, Don D sitting in, in the audience from Arizona and I told him a story a few years ago about this very daughter. Uh, she was visiting and, and uh, she just gets unglued when her mother gets me coffee in the morning. Let him get his own coffee, you know. And one Christmas she gave me a cup and said, liberated man, I'm able to get my own coffee. And uh, <laughs> she's, this is her mindset. And she's a very strong-willed young lady. And she, uh, we were in the laundry room one day, and I said, Nancy, come in here and help me with this, this thing. And she came in here and she says, she got it all fixed and got the machines going. She said, explain something to me. I don't understand. You used to do surgery, you know, delicate surgery, captain of the ship and all this kind of thing, complex cases. How can you not run this damn washing machine? I said, that's too complicated for me, you know. And then I walked out. <laughs> Three weeks later, she calls me. She's hysterically laughing hysterically laughing. She says, I finally figured it out. I said, what did you figure out? She says, why you can't run the damn washing machine? I says, why? She says, because it's got normal on the dial. 
So Don sent me a, a, a button a couple of years ago that said something about normal in the washing machine, and I showed it to Nancy, and she's still laughing about it. Anyway, uh, this is a letter from Nancy um, in 1998 when she was pregnant with her first child, and they didn't want to know whether it was a boy or a girl, so they called it Tiny. And uh, Nancy was out in Washington visiting us, and she went out to, we had a cabin out on the coast. And there were a bunch of pictures out there of other places. And this is the letter she wrote when she came back from that uh, uh, visit to cabin. She saw a picture of our home in Illinois that was the scene of all of my drinking and the very worst parts of the inn. And, of course, uh, she got saddled with kind of being the parents for a long time because um, I was actively drinking and not uh, physically and emotionally available. Uh, and being a, a good, responsible parent, and my wife uh, was depressed and, and going through her stuff, and so we, what the, anyway, she, uh, she um, looked at this picture and got this unspeakable sadness, and, and this is what she wrote when she came back. Uh, after all these years in therapy, that house still makes me sad and unspeakable sadness, something I can't describe, the years of loss, of chaos, confusion, loneliness, and desperation, not just for me, but I think for all of us. And I was thinking as I stood there how much things have changed from those awful years to now, standing there looking out the sun shining on your ocean, how you have created this beautiful life and how you and Mom are doing things that make you happy and fulfilled. And I thought about how proud I was of you for making it through. We could still be stuck back in Illinois, and it took a lot of courage to get out and try to find a better way to live. Uh, I can also see a transformation of incredible proportions. Uh, And Nancy's not one to give compliments, believe me. Uh, From our falling apart house, mom crying at night, dad angry and preoccupied, Billy withdrawn and depressed, the boys running scared, me white-knuckling some kind of survival, to now where it seems we have a beautiful life as a family and also individually, where we are all pursuing the kind of life and work that brings us meaning and joy. So I wanted to tell you I'm not angry anymore. So I wanted to say how proud of you I am because it really does seem like a miracle how different it is between now and then. But it's not like it just happened. It took a lot of struggling and hard work and meetings and therapy and all that. And you tried to get all of us to work too and to deal with everything and all the baggage it's not like there will never be any conflict anymore but now there is peace which is really tremendous those years in Illinois could have ripped us apart forever but we made it back so I wanted to say thank you for leading the way I have so much respect for you in doing it and tiny that's the baby and this is the most important part of the letter for me um, and Tiny thanks you, too, because I think we can now say the cycle is broken. I feel pretty confident about that. And she's talking about all the years of generations of alcoholism in our family. Not that there won't be any challenges, but I think there will be different ones that I can face with openness and strength and the grace of God, which makes me really happy. And for me, that's promises come true in so many ways. So thanks for allowing us to share and we'd like you all to come up and take a turn at the microphone and give us some of your thoughts about these promises in your recovery lives.
My name is Bob Elk, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Curtis and Lynn. That was great. Um, and, Lynn, thanks for uh, talking about the confusion about numbering the promises. That's always been a mystery to me. For me, the first promise when I first read those was always that we will be amazed because that was my experience. Uh, when I got into treatment, um, you know, the world was ending for me. I'd been arrested. I thought I was facing 17 years in prison. I thought my life was going to end, and I was uh, commanded to go to this uh, treatment center that I didn't want to be in, and, you know, uh, life was over. And uh, there wasn't much uh, that amazed me back then. Everything was pretty much desperation and depression. And uh, shortly after I got there, um, as people began telling my story, uh, I surrendered. And, uh, and shortly after that, I became amazed by recovery, that here was an answer. I'd never had an answer in my life. Uh, to the kind of stuff that Jerry was talking about in the early bird meeting, about that voice inside that always told me that I was less than and worthless and an imposter and um, was going to be found out, all that stuff. And here was an answer, and I became amazed for the first time in a long, long time. And I've been told and i found uh, that there's promises throughout that book um, of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, that there are hundreds of promises which I've been shown and have found. Uh, but the one about being amazed before we are halfway through, that's the one that's meant the most to me. It's good to be sober today. Thanks. My name is Kirk. I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. <clears throat> um, thanks for sharing. I, uh, the <clears throat> That's one of the things that struck me about getting starting to get sober and continuing to stay sober is the relationship with my children. Um, I was 12-step by a DEA agent <coughs> who, uh, <coughs> who, after fingerprinting me, said, you know, you're not the first doctor that this has happened to, and if you go to treatment and do the deal, you're going to be okay. And, uh, you know, even in that hour of incredible desperation, he gave me a glimmer of hope. He didn't try to explain the program to me, but, you know, I... I heard it, and uh, you know, uh, before I went off to treatment, my uh, ex-wife <clears throat> hid my children off with friends or with uh, other people, and uh, tried to keep me from seeing them. And uh, uh, you know, so I went off to treatment, wondering whether I was going to ever have a relationship with my children again, and that was. The job and my kids were about the only thing left in my life uh, by that time. And, um, you know, my daughters are grown. Uh, they're 22 and 25. And I can go and visit them. They can send me similar stuff, uh, cards and letters. And, you know, they thank me for being the father that I am. And, you know, that was... That was my biggest worry as I was going off to treatment. And, you know, just one of many of those uh, uh, promises that came, uh, that have come to be. And, you know, I, I it's it, it just, you know, it's a very gradual thing, but uh, it, it really is, you know, when they send me a birthday card or something, the, the, the additional comments that are in there are uh, uh, 
you know, now just so heartwarming. And I, I, uh, <clears throat> I shudder to think what they'd be if, if uh, you know, if I hadn't come here, if I hadn't uh, been involved in this. Um, and it is, you know, that, that uh, uh, knowing how to handle situations which used to baffle us, it, it, it strikes me it, uh, most often at work, you know, to, to be able to have something come up and, and you know, people just kind of look at me like, why the hell isn't he yelling or screaming or, you know, some equipment breaks in the operating room. And I just kind of back away and let him fix it and close my eyes and say the serenity prayer. So, um, thanks. Hi, my name is Mel. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. When I first uh, came into recovery uh, and I read the big, big book, I didn't know anything about the uh, promises. And somebody had to point it out. And I knew about the 12 steps and uh, the 12 traditions, but I had no idea about 12 promises. And I really wasn't interested in any promises. I only came into recovery to save my job. Because my job for me was my whole identity. Now, when I was two years and four months old, I had an abandonment issue. My father had dropped me off at my aunt's house, and he didn't tell me why, and I was there for ten days. And I didn't know why my father stopped loving me, why he dropped me off at my aunt's house. I didn't know what Mel had done wrong. And I remember looking out the window in the Bronx, in my aunt's house, waiting for my father to come to pick me up. And he didn't come the first day or the second day. And um, I remember saying to myself, uh, this is never going to happen to Mel again. I'll never trust my father or my mother. And I didn't know about God. And um, from that point on, I wasn't going to trust anybody. And all I ever wanted in life was to be loved. And I just didn't know how to go about getting that. And that's why I had so much trouble in relationships. When I was four years old, I wanted to become a doctor. At the time, I wasn't sure why. Um, but I remember being sick. And the family doctor had come over to my house, and he held my hand. And there I was, four years old, looking at this tall doctor. And I said, I want to be just like him. Because the, uh, the love that I felt for him at that moment was what I wanted, what I craved. And that's why I wanted to be a doctor. I always said, oh, I want to be a doctor because I want to help people, make them better. No. I wanted to be a doctor so I could help people so they could love Mel. That's what I wanted. And for 59 and a half years, I went through life looking for love. And it wasn't until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous that I found unconditional love. And, uh, and that's the greatest promise that ever happened for me. I remember once I was in a, 
an AA meeting in Mustard Seed in New York. My wife was undergoing surgery. And I went to this meeting, and um, there was a little plaque that said, We will love you until you learn to love yourself. And I saw that, and I cried. Because that was the first slogan that really meant something to me. And I'm so grateful to be here, to be in a room where there is unconditional love, because this is what I've been looking for all my life, and I'm going to stay here until the day I die. Thank you. I'm Larry, and I'm an alcoholic from Georgia. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. Uh, I'm also a promises junkie. This is there's a real reason for this. I live and love and, as my friends know, just try to stay in the twelve steps. But the promises represent something a little different to me. <clears throat> uh, they came at me out of the fog in 1991 when I sobered up. But I started coming around these rooms, forced to enter them, in 1977. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to see a lot of difference in 77 and sobering up in 91. It was a rough trip, in and out, in and out, in and out. But I learned something during that period of time. And a lot of you, if you look at yourselves, feel the same way. I used AA, you know. Small community practicing medicine. They would, someone on the street would say, gee, you're looking better. Yeah. Find out I'm an alcoholic, I'm going to AA. And I'd stay in there until somebody said that too many times. And then I'd take it in the wrong way and I'd just go back out and experiment some more. And this went over and over and over until there wasn't anything left. I was living right by myself in a small apartment with, as I moved into it and ran away from my lovely home and four children, I told myself, well, now you're going to have the hot and cold running nurses in the life you deserve. The only person that came to that house for a year was a little old lady I had to hire because I couldn't run the washing machine either. <laughs> but finally they captured me, and I got spun dry in Coliseum Hospital in Macon, Georgia, and carted off to Atlanta, very close by but a good place for Georgians to go. And that's where I met one of the terrors of my life, Jerry, who I sat there this morning says, he's talking about being afraid. I used to be terrified of that man. Now I love him. But anyway, I got there the very first night. We're sitting in a big circle, a hundred of us. And Doug was there. He was running the meeting. And just like we do on Thursday night, they said, how did you get here, Larry? And I started my little song and dance about how I volunteered. And I got through that end of it, and he looked at me, and he said, No, no, we took the bottle away from you. And now it's left a hole where your guts and your heart were. And it's got to heal, and you've got to clean it. You're a physician. To, to heal a wound, it's got to be clean. And that's what the promises are to me. They are a sign of my healing, and they're ongoing, and they never end. But every one of the promises, if you look at it, have an implication of some kind of healing. And that's the way I look at them, and that's the way I have them on a coffee cup. Found at a meeting of IDAA years ago. Favorite coffee cup. God help the radiology technician that ever breaks it. 
but that's what they are to me. They're they're a, a touchstone or a milestone of my healing. So I, I, I touch them all the time, just like I touch the serenity prayer. They're a tremendous, tremendous thing. My favorite drink is the next one, but my favorite meeting is the one I'm at, and this is my favorite meeting. I, I do a lot of street AA. That keeps me sober, but this is the touchstone also. I come to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because there are no pictures in the big book. Thanks. My name is Randy, and I'm an alcoholic. Courtesy of Lynn Hankins, today I'm also a downhill skier at the age of 56. That's not a promise. That's defying gravity. Um, When I came into the program... I used to go to a lot of meetings. Um, most people do when they come into the program. But I heard the promises, but I heard them sort of like as if they were beyond a glass wall. I thought they were for you, not for me. Uh, I had a profound distrust of them. And there was a guy named Dave that came to a meeting that I used to go to down on the streets of Miami. And Dave would come in about the 18th of every month. He was a veteran. He'd get his check around the first of the month. We wouldn't see him again until around the 18th, you know, and when his check was exhausted and he'd stumble through about 12 more days of meetings, he'd get another check and he'd go back out again. And, uh, you know, I just kind of watched that and watched that and watched that. Uh, and I didn't see Dave for a while, and I went to another meeting, uh, and lo and behold, this really handsome guy, really well-groomed, um, got up and picked up his 90-day chip, and I'm going, holy tamole, that is Dave. And I went over to him, and I said, Dave, you know, you remember me, Randy? I'm, you know, and he said, yeah, yeah. I said, congratulations on your 90-day chip. You know, go for it, man. He says, I'm out of here. I said, what do you mean? You got to go to another meeting? He says, no, I've been here 90 days. I've cleaned up. I don't have a job yet. I don't have a TV. I don't have a car. I'm out of here. And we never saw Dave again. And what Dave taught me is that at some level, that's what I really thought about the promises. And, you know, I continued working a program, but later on a group asked me to do the steps for them, which we did in Miami. Somebody would take the group through the steps. And it was really a kind of a paradoxical way of getting you to work your steps again (laughs) in a very formal fashion. And when we got to the fifth step, I had to talk about my experience. And what I had finally come to see, and this was where I really began to believe the promises, was that whatever I was before, I was no longer the person that picked up that first drink that got me drunk. I didn't know necessarily who I would become, but I was no longer that person who got drunk years before. And that was a relief. That was a big relief. I'm on my fourth career in sobriety today. I came in as a travel agent and airline person, became a computer tech, then went into addiction studies, and then somebody said, don't pay any attention to Dr. Adair. He's only a Ph.D. 
I said, Mother, we got two medical schools in this town, one with and one without a football team. I don't know where I'm going to wind up other than piled up in some snow someday. But I know I'm not the person that picked up that first drink. So beware, the promises do come true. Thanks a lot. Bobby G. I'm Leland and I'm an alcoholic. Hiya, family. Thank you so much, everyone, uh, for making a 12-step on me. The promises mean so much to me. I just briefly want to tell you an amazing story, uh, talking about being amazed before we were halfway through. When I got sober, I had, had left scars on my family that have had a hard time healing, as so many of us have. When I went to treatment, uh, I had no idea where my wife was, but she had left a note for me, and the note said, I can't stand to see you killing yourself. God be with you. And she was gone. The third day I was in treatment, one of the counselors came up and said, well, we found Mary. Uh, She's going to come this Friday, and she has a message for you. She's coming Friday, and she's getting a divorce. Well, I laughed inappropriately, but, you know, it wasn't the first time she had said that. My daughter, who was so estranged from me, uh, was actually, at that time, she had prayed for my death. And she was very serious about it, too, she told me later, because that would have solved everything as far as our relationship went. And fortunately, that didn't happen. The amazing thing that happened uh, along the way in regards to these messages that I received was that a month or so after I got out of treatment, um, my daughter and I got together and we rebuilt things. By this time, she had actually uh, gone back to school and became an alcoholism counselor. Uh, As time went on, uh, and I got back into reentry and into practice, she ended up working for me and did for eight and a half years. So I'm totally amazed uh, about all these blessings that just keep happening. And I have framed a little card that she wrote me uh, saying how nice it was to have her daddy back. So thank you all and thanks so much. Hi, I'm Twyla. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon and one of your Alateen sponsors. Hi. Um, I just just wanted to share a little bit um, about the impact that the promises have had on my life and also what I see going on in this program. And and, um, Curtis, I'm sorry I didn't get up early enough to hear you, but uh, thank you, Lynn, for, for your talk. 
I know one of your daughters grew up here. Um, I ran into um, a cousin of mine yesterday who lives in Mobile who I haven't seen in probably 20, well, close to 20 years. And um, I wanted to reconnect with this person. She used to be very close to me. She's really the only relative I have on, on one side of the family. And her dad died of alcoholism. And I remember it. It was uh, cancer of the pancreas, a very painful death. And uh, we started talking. And I shared my story with her. And she looked at me. She says, that's absolutely horrible that you had to go through all that. And I looked at her and I said, no, you know, it wasn't horrible that I had to go through that. It was a blessing that I did get through it. And that I'm here now to reestablish a relationship with you and be a part of your life. Yes, it's sad. It's sad that I wasn't able to be a part of the family for many years because of the trauma and having to be away in order to heal. But the beautiful part is that today I can move on. And then I went to the Alateen meeting. And I listened to these kids who are 12 up talk about their pain from the impact of this disease. But I also listened to them talk about their hope. They talk about the fact that they are the ones among the friends who are the most mature, who have tools to deal with the issues that are going on in their lives that have a higher power that they can turn to. And living with the disease of alcoholism as a child, as a lot of us know, because we did that, can be horrifying. But living with the disease of alcoholism as a child with the program of Alateen and knowing that their parents are in AA or Al-Anon can be absolutely rewarding. And that's where the promises are happening. Thank you. My name is Burns, and I'm an alcoholic. I may not be much, but I'm all I think about, and I need to say that because I almost didn't come up here because I'm sitting here thinking I got I get behind a microphone a lot, uh, and I want your approval so damn bad I wasn't going to come up here because you'll say he gets behind a microphone a lot. So I spent the last 15 minutes dealing with that crap, and then I, <laughs> and I, I'm going to get the tape so I can hear what those other people said because I was too busy with me to understand what the hell they said. But, but I realize that the reason I talk a lot, and, and Curtis and Lynn, thank you, uh, is because I've, I've, been, I've had a lot of experience. I've been around for quite a while, and, and uh, this program, I've had to almost bleed on every, every piece of thing that I went through because I'll milk a mouse to try to get from point A to point B or analyze a frog, you know, that sort of stuff. But the fifth, or the, or the uh, will not regret the past and I wish to shut the door on it, was the next to last promise that really became, I came to peace with. I still deal frequently with the fear of financial insecurity, and uh, it's better. And I want to share this about that, will not regret the past and I wish to shut the door on it. Uh, <clears throat> I had deep sadness, deep regret, deep shame about my family, my children, especially, having missed them while I was drinking in Empire Building and those things. My first sponsor in AA was an angel who was an obedience sponsor. 
and I realized that each angel that's come in my life brought something, and he taught me obedience because I really thought I knew the way, knew what obedience meant, but I didn't. But with him, I really did everything exactly the way he told me to do it. I did it for 10 years, and that relationship then was over through a series of actions that I would have never initiated because of my dependency on him. Uh, a series of actions were, I choose to believe were God, and I was led to the next phase of my recovery after 10 years. My next sponsor was a sponsor who led me, along with Joe and Charlie's tapes, into developing the program. And I remember I said to Jack early on, Jack, I, I, I regret the past and wish to shut the door on it all the time. I feel so guilty and I feel so shameful. He looked at me and he said, then you'll make it. He said, you ought to feel guilty and ashamed. That means you've got a conscience. And the people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves are the people who don't get this program. He said, now, if you choose to live there, then you'll probably drink. He said, so the deal is, how can we make that productive? How can it not only be removed, but make it productive? Something that would be a gift rather than than what you're making it. So we began the step work at well over 10 years in the program for me. Totally committed to the program. Never thought about taking a drink during that time. But it was just a, a very aggressive, very demanding, very approval-seeking uh, adolescent who happened to be 50 years old. And that's where I was. And as the steps unfolded for me, I've had this spiritual awakening, and it prepared me to be able to be of use in God's army. He said, you have to buy a fundamental principle in this program, Burns, and that principle is, what are you here for? I said, I'm here not to drink. And he said, no, you're here not to drink so you can figure out what you're here for. He said, you're here to be of service to other people. So you got to do your work, as the book says, to fit yourself to be of service. Because for 10 years, I dragged people off to treatment right and left. Hell, they said, here he comes, drink a beer, he's going to take your ass to treatment anyway. I mean, that's where I was for 10 years. And it uh, didn't matter whether they were alcoholic or not, I just dragged them to treatment. And I'm being cute about it, but you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, so I began to do all the step work I needed to do and bought that fundamental principle. I was here to be of service. And then the world opened up. And the world opened up because I began to work with people in a level that would bring them what I had, which was significant, not just not drinking. And I don't know how many fifth steps I have done with people. I don't, I don't notch my belt, but I've been blessed to be in a position to where that's a part of some programs that I'm involved with. And I'm not talking about the impaired physicians program because that's not what I do. I do that, but I mean, I don't, I don't do fifth steps with the people in the program that, that I happen to be the medical director of. But I'm also involved with an indigent shelter that, that is a huge deal. Uh, we sleep 300 men and women a night, and we've got 150 in a year-long program of recovery. And I do a lot of fifth steps with those men. And as I sit there and the ones who are really into it begin to throw their stuff out, 
about their children, about these kind of things. I sat there and I began to tell them about what happened with me and my children and what I didn't do when they were growing up. And also to show them that my very example, I've got a daughter been in AA, has been in AA 22 years. I've got a son who's been in AA for uh, 19 years. He's 38 and she's 42. And I said, they watched me, and they're able to say that changed their lives. Yeah, they got marked by me. And yeah, they got a gene pool that sucks. But at the same time, they now have something because they saw what Daddy did. And when I became a productive adult in recovery in their lives, and to watch the lives, of, to watch the eyes of those men as they began to see that they can use that very past to bring peace in your life, that you that that they're not the worst sucker who ever lived, they're not the best sucker who ever lived, but that I can be like this guy is, and I can use all of this to help another person. I don't regret the past and wish to shut the door on it. Now, I'm blessed because until the grandkids came along, I still wished I hadn't missed my children. And then the grandkids came along, and I got another shot. And I'm having to work hard at it because I didn't know how to be a granddaddy, and I didn't know how to be a father. I really didn't, at least a father of little children, because I don't remember them as little children. But I've got a shot. So all of this stuff that I did has now been used in God's army to help another human being. It's a magnificent feeling to know that that stuff doesn't have to go to waste. And as long as I choose to feel guilty and feel to, and choose to feel that shame, then I've set myself up as God and have judged me. And I don't have to do that anymore once I did my step work and used what I've been given. Thanks. Hey, everyone. I'm Karen. I'm an addict and alcoholic. I feel like a Southern Baptist coming up at the invitation. I I felt really drawn to come up. Um, I have been in this program in and out of this program for about 11 years, and I still feel like I don't have that freedom and happiness that everybody in this room has. Uh, I think this morning I just understood better than I ever had why I don't have it. Um, I um, At one time I said I was going to write a tour book for all the long-term treatments in the southeastern United States because I've been, I've been in most of them. And uh, I guess I've just tried to get by in this program. I would, uh, you know, I've always thought maybe I needed to have done it worse. Maybe I, I've always just dabbled with the drugs and the alcohol and, and always managed to get caught and always got sent back to treatment and always did what I could to get out of treatment so I could get back home. And I never have fully invested myself in this program. I never have. And even in this meeting, um, I see myself as just a, a person who doesn't relate to people. Um, just very cynical, very sarcastic, very judgmental, 
And, um, you know, I think only in this meeting have I come to the realization that, that that's what it's all about. It's about relating to people. And, and I never have done that. I, I guess I could be the only person in this room right now who felt like that I was alone. <laughs> you know, when everybody is, can get up here and share their hearts and, and I'm just, I'm so impressed that people can, can tell what they've been through and, and share their hearts and I, I still feel like that I'm, I'm sitting and watching rather than participating and I, and I want to change that. Um, I went off to my last treatment about nine months ago and I, I, I have honestly tried to, to, uh, do what I've been told for the first time a little bit more. Um, I guess the, the realization I've got out of what Burns said and what Curtis said and what everybody else has said is that that I'm, I'm, I'm never going to get this program until I quit being so self-centered and start trying to help some other people. And uh, that is my huge struggle. I, I don't even know how to even start doing it because I, I guess all my thoughts are about me, 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 you know. And um, I, I do thank everybody in here who's been willing to, to share how you know what they've done, and especially that it that it came to me that that until I start developing some relationships with people, and I have a I have a 16 year old son who's just so loving, and that I even still just hold at arm's distance I, that I that I I just. I have such trouble dredging up emotions and, 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 and feeling. And I, I can't tell anybody where that came from, but I, I do come out of this meeting and this, this talk about the promises, wanting a new happiness and a new freedom, and wanting to somehow start getting close to people. And I, I don't really know how to begin that exactly, but, um, I'm dedicating myself from this point forward to doing that. Thanks for letting me share. Hi, I'm Catherine. Catherine, I'm an alcoholic. And you can ditto what Burns Brady said about self-absorption and debating about whether to get up or not and yada yada. Because... Um, so much of what I did prior to the program was ego-driven, and um, still I have to really watch that. But um, getting here, I've learned that I'm lovable and I'm the worthy of love. And I've always known that, yeah, Chatty Cathy was cute, but um, there's a real uh, fear about acceptance and fear about what I'm going to produce or fear about... Um, that I still struggle with. And I've been here working the 12 steps and going to meetings three to four to seven times a week since July 8th, 1985. So it is an ongoing struggle. But I do, I am one of the people that do know the new freedom and the new happiness. And I do comprehend the word serenity. And that peace is the self-acceptance and the self-love, the unconditional love that I learned um, that I learned through first I saw a glimmer of it through my brother's AA meeting that he started and he died of AIDS when I was three years sober. He was a doctor 
in L.A. And, um, and then I got divorced. And then I moved away from my AA support group. And all through all that, um, I was wondering. Uh, I lived, I started to live more in the present. And I didn't so much wonder what the next right step was. And I think an internist doctor who used to come to these meetings, who's in my, um, I have a step group, and we're, that I actually started. There's seven women who are working Paul O's 12 Steps to Recovery. It's a fabulous little booklet. But I finally, um, the power of now is something that Leah told me about, if you know Leah. Uh, but it's about living in the present. It's, it's this program. And, um, and it's about a surrender to a higher power. And um, I'm just so grateful. Eight of the 11 people, I'm the third of nine kids born in 11 years. Mom and dad are in the program. Everybody but two of my brothers and sisters are in AA. My son is right now in treatment, and I ask for prayers for him from all of you. He's 20. He'll be 21, October 22nd. He's bipolar. He's an alcoholic and addict who's afraid to try LSD and anything beyond marijuana and beer to calm the mania when he stops taking his meds. So it's a real, real difficult, difficult problem for him. And, you know, I can look back and say I wasn't there for my son. I was busy selling jets, and I was trying to provide the incredibly um, privileged childhood that I had had for him by myself. And my daughter, who's 18, who's about to go off to the College of Charleston. So empty nest syndrome is about to hit me. and About to hit me. Ah! <laughs> But I know that the love, the acceptance, the promises, as Kirk says, my life is beyond my wildest schemes. You know, it's just unbelievable. His sponsee introduced the two of us four years ago. The benefits of this program are incredible. Once I'm willing to share, and that's why I got up here, because I've received so much so far this weekend and the other two years I've been here. And um, you can't have access to me unless I share who I am, my fears, my strengths, my loves, my hopes, my dreams, my weaknesses. And I am so grateful. I'm what people call a doctor avoider. Yes, I am. I'm a massage therapist now, and I'm afraid. I was afraid. I'm not as fearful anymore. But the son that avoids taking his medicine was told, you know, he got migraines. He went to sleep. You don't take medicine, you know. And, you know, God put me in Kirk's life to use my salesmanship to help other people, too, stop avoiding doctors and stop judging, you know. I was better than doctors because they wanted to make lots of money. And, you know, I just had to hide that. Um, part of me that wanted to make lots of money. I couldn't be honest about it. And I, I see that as so dishonest. Kevin McCauley said, um, the heroin addicts are really sweet, sweet people. And I see doctors as really sweet, sweet people with loving intention, with a willingness to use the discipline in the brains that they've got to give to other people the love that they have in their hearts may not be able to express it in words the way that other people do. But 
I'm so grateful y'all have gone through the discipline of becoming doctors and giving back the love and finding this program and a willingness. You know, uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Melanie when I'm alcoholic. And Curtis, I want to thank you for telling your story because I love those really crazy stories. And, um, you know, I'm the oldest of eight children and I grew up in a crazy alcoholic family with an um, angry alcoholic doctor father who's still drinking. And um, I have seven younger brothers and sisters and I've learned a lot about myself during my using times from my seven younger brothers and sisters about how crazy I really was. And um, last year... Um, seven of us went to do an intervention on my brother in Colorado who was 47 years old and really in end-stage alcoholism. And I'm from Minnesota, and we got him into Hazelden. And it was so, so wonderful because the whole time he was there, it was like he was at a spa. He was so happy to be there. You know, I talked to, he called me on the phone every day, and he was just so thrilled to be there. And when I went to treatment... My father said, she's not alcoholic, she's just under too much stress. And, you know, I was never allowed to talk about it at all. And when he came out, he just talked and talked and talked and talked. And he told a story about a woman that came to speak there, who he said reminded him totally of me. And she was, you know, skinny and blonde and in cowboy boots and jeans. And that's how I looked when I went there. I weighed 107 pounds from doing cocaine. And... um you know, she'd been in and out, in and out, in and out, and the last time she left was some guy. Um, you know, and they went to a hotel, and they were using and using, 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 and she would pass out and wake up, and um, the last time she woke up, she was naked. She didn't know how long she'd been asleep, and the, uh, the guy she was with was asleep, and his nose was all full of blood, and she said there was a bad smell in the room, and she couldn't wake him up. So she called the cops, and they came, and he'd been dead for a week. And my brother said, that reminded me of you. And I said, you know, then I knew how crazy I had been. I had no idea. Um, You know, so I've been learning. You know, I didn't think I was that crazy. I didn't think I was that insane. I didn't think I needed to go to treatment when PSP intervened on me. Um, You know, so I've had to learn that in my sobriety. And, you know... Now I'm grateful, you know, after being in AA and, um, you know, learning the things I've learned and learning to love myself and learning to be grateful, you know, um, you know, my life has changed so much. And Lynn, I want to say to you, um, thank you for reading that letter. Because I would love to be able to write my father a letter like that. Um, He was sober for six years at one time. And he wasn't that happy, you know. He didn't go to meetings. He wouldn't do anything. But it was wonderful. And um, I have really been grieving in the last few months how heavily he's drinking again and how much my mother enables him and, you know, that she's really drinking heavily. And I love that letter, so thank you. I would just love to have that joy in our family. So thanks. Thank you.